Hi everyone, and welcome to the Psychic Femmes first full moon interview. I'm Suzanne Garcia Pino, and I'm really excited about this recording. Not only because I get to have a great conversation with my dear friend Tommy, but also because I've always thought it would be fun to interview people about their creative process um, and center it around astrological themes. So on that note, today is a full moon in Leo. And Leo is all about shining and courage and feeling connected to the innate dignity that we all have as humans. The Leo in us wants to be seen. And when our Leo energy is healthy, we allow ourselves to take up space authentically, meaning we allow ourselves to be ourselves in right-sized ways. But the reason I wanted to talk to Tommy for this Leo full moon interview is because Tommy, as you will hear, has an incredible backstory, complete with a really sweet Oprah-ready redemption arc that she shared multiple times for many different groups and venues over the years. At some point, however, she started to feel like her redemption story wasn't actually redeeming her anymore. And if anything, she was as bad off, if not worse than before. This full moon in Leo might feel like an identity check for all of us. We are all hopefully massively changing right now. I'm not sure how anyone in 2022 could get away with stagnation. And there might be an old self out there haunting the internets or social media feeds or whatever um, that you don't identify with. And how very normal. So this is what happened to my dear friend, Tommy. And um, she's going to tell you all about it. Testing, 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 What you all need to know about um, my interviewee, Tommy Go Cook, is that um, she is my Mars and Leo sister. Yeah. So. The way that I would describe that is, um, I feel like my Mars and Leo is like, I won the genetic lottery of, um, astrology. Like Mars and Leo is, uh, I call it my, my golden retriever signature. And, um, I met Tommy in, she's in my sober community. And, uh, what I first noticed about her was that every time she would like pop in to a setting, um, there were sparkle fingers that were happening, just like huge smiles and sparkle fingers and joy, like ebullient joy, which is how I would also describe, um, Mars and Leo. It can be this kind of like aggressive, amazing, very, very big joy, which, um, I love because Mars in Leo to me is like, People just need to get their sticks out of their butts mm -hmm. and have a good time and fall in love with each other. Yes. What's the problem? Yes. <laughs> what is the problem? <laughs> so that's what um, that's what you need to know about Tommy. Mm -hmm. But so Tommy, what what do you do? What else? What are some other things that like maybe normal people would want to know about you? The four one one. Yeah. Um, so I'm a therapist at the syringe exchange in Missoula, Montana. We're the only harm reduction agency in the entire state, which means that we're not an abstinence based program. So we serve people no matter where they are with their use. Um, and the philosophy is basically like you're a human being, you deserve dignity and respect and let's just love you until if you're ever ready to make changes so that way we have that trust and can help you towards those things so love the work that I do and I am also a beater I make I use Japanese glass beads and Japanese thread and little Japanese scissors and I make these Japanese glass bead earrings I'm also going to add that you 
use hardcore uh, psychic slash intuitive abilities because (laughs) Tommy just made me some amazing glass beads that like were exactly who I am. And the color, like, she nailed the colors, like, white, gold, black. She, like, nailed the design. It was crazy. Um, Tommy, how did you get into your line of work? And the reason why I asked this question is because I want to segue into a little bit about um, the idea of our stories and how, um, because Tommy and I participate in a program where telling our stories sort of over and over again has the power of like a deep transformative experience, um, a spiritual experience, I would say, Mm um, you know, my question, like as a writer and as someone who feels, um, I at one point forged an identity around my own past story, what starts happening when you start healing Mm -hmm. and you no longer have that attachment to that identity. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really interested in that. But, um, so tell us a little bit about how you got into your line of work in the first place. Yeah. So it definitely feels like I'm full circle now because of my lived experience fell in love with a boy, um, when I was 15 or 16 and most exciting guy I ever met come to find out he was high on ecstasy. Like I was this 4.0 band student, Japanese mom, like very like trying to make her happy, um, trying to be perfect. And then I meet this guy and, uh, he was, you know, all the exciting things that I thought was missing in my life. And when I found out that he was addicted to Oxycontin, I did, um, I guess, you know, I decided that I needed to love him and go down into hell with him. And I would love him so much. And we would go through this journey together of like darkness and my love would heal him, um, that he would be with me forever and, and, uh, we would live happily ever after. But what ended up happening was I got addicted to Oxycontin he went to prison and, um, before I knew it, I was homeless living out of my car. My family had kicked me out. My friends had given up on me cause they just watched me spiral down so hard. Um, and he was my only connection to drugs. So I didn't know how else to make the money I needed. Um, so I started prostituting. I was living out of my car. So I was homeless. I was prostituting and, um, addicted to Oxycontin. Uh, and I finally hit a break point. I was in and out of rehabs a few times and just could never stay sober. And as a last ditch effort, I decided to sell my car and buy a one-way ticket to Tokyo where my mom's family was because I just thought that, you know, nothing was working for me here. Going to rehab wasn't working. I wasn't able to pull myself out of this. I needed to be in a country where it was highly illegal to have drugs. I just assumed I wouldn't even be able to find it, um, and start fresh and thought that everything would be okay. And how old were you at this point? I was 18. You were 18. When I moved to Japan. And how old were you? So how long was this like downward spiral? The plummet was quick. Mm -hmm. The plummet was quick. Um, I would say within months I was, you know, I had done all of the ecstasy, all of the cocaine, like Mm -hmm. smoked all the gravity bongs and bong ribs and drank myself into, you know, pass out states like Mm -hmm. all the time, uh, and was fully hooked on Oxycontin, like within months. Mm -hmm. I just, I hit the fuck it button. Mm -hmm. I was like, this being perfect is not working for me. So how about this? Fuck you. Like watch me fucking kill myself. Yeah. Let's see how this is going to work. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And it just, it just got really gross. Um, there's just a lot of predators out there. Mm-hmm. I was young. Mm-hmm. They knew, you know, a lot of young girls. It was like the beginning of the opioid epidemic. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of creepy older men who had access to prescription medications would like lure us in and, mm-hmm. 
um, you know, yeah, make us girls do sexual things in for trade of drugs or, mm-hmm. you know, they would have sex with us in trade of drugs and, mm-hmm. and it just, it got really dark really quick. Did it feel like an alien darkness to you or were you mm-hmm. so subsumed mm-hmm. in that space that that darkness, there was almost like a naturalness to it? I felt very comfortable in it. Like, that is actually a thread of my story that was really tough for me once I started getting sober of, like, feeling so much comfort in the darkness. Yeah. Of, it was uh, it just, like, it was, like, me trying to be perfect and trying to be good and trying to get all of the love that I was seeking never worked. And I always felt awkward and uncomfortable mm-hmm. and constantly groveling and begging and contorting, but like mm-hmm. in the darkness when I could just like give no fucks mm-hmm. and just plummet into it, there was a comfort to it. Yeah. 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 Like, um, was it almost like a, well, I, my, my, my outside situation is finally matching up with yes. like what it felt like on the inside. Yes. And it's, that was exhausting before trying to pretend like it wasn't happening. And at least now yeah. I can like, touch oblivion. That's such a great way to put it. Like, I think it finally allowed me to access the rage that was inside of me, like the grief that was inside of me, Mm -hmm. um, that I had never really acknowledged before. Yeah. And you know, that's interesting about your, like the rage inside of you, because you know, you do have that Mars in Leo and, um, it's your Mars is on your IC, which mm-hmm. is, it's one of the angles that goes into like the foundation mm-hmm. when we come into this world. And there is this kind of like world that you came into mm-hmm. that really had to contend with mm-hmm. aggressive, angry issues. Those mm-hmm. Mars issues, like patriarchal issues, mm-hmm. anger towards the father, like Big. those kinds of issues. And then you know, if we can get healthy and if we can transcend that, then we can Mm -hmm. also pull out joy in the Leo and like aggressive fun. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I am sort of interested in, in asking you like in that dimension, um, of course I, there is the, um, the daunting darkness and there's Mm -hmm. 30 levels of ick for sure happening there. But, um, something that like, I know for my own story in sobriety and like a lot of sober people talk about is, you know, how being, having access to oblivion at certain stages in our life, there was fun to it too. Mm -hmm. There was fun parts of it. Like it was not, it was not all like an after school special. (laughs) There were parts that were like really fun and, um, you know, a lot of the friendships that you make, like they don't last, um, because for probably obvious reasons, but, um, at the time it, you feel like those are your like best friend. Those are your like ride or dies, you know? Yeah. And I'm just wondering, like, did you, were, were there senses of like freedom that were happening for you too, that felt expansive and big, even though, you know, let's acknowledge, like, we don't want to go, we don't want to find freedom in those ways, but I'm curious about that. It absolutely was. I don't think I would have taken that route if there wasn't Mm -hmm. like this wild joyousness to it. Like, um, the freedom of it, you know, and that soul bonding that seems that, that you were speaking to, like that was definitely happening. It was just like, it was, it was in the opposite direction. It was like, all right, let's go to hell together. Let's do this. Yes. Like very, yes. you know, let's drive this car right off the cliff holding hands. Like, yes. <laughs> I, there's something so romantic to me about like locking eyes and let's go to hell together. I know. I mean, it really <laughs> is. And I feel like I've explored that. So now I can be like, okay, I actually don't want to do that. <laughs> But yeah, there was so many, there were years and years and years in my life where I'm like, hell yeah. Yeah. Like otherwise, is this even a friendship? Is this (laughs) even a relationship? (laughs) You know? So I love that. Um, 
Okay, so you get yourself to Japan. Do you speak Japanese at this point? Just a little bit. Okay.、Um, yeah, my Japanese isn't very good. It wasn't very good.、Mm-hmm. And so there was a huge language barrier.、Um, and then the withdrawal process, you know, the physical withdrawals are bad.、Mm-hmm. But after that's over, the depression, the anxiety, like all of those emotions that I've been suppressing for years, like those are all there to be contended with. So, I was absolutely miserable. Like,、mm-hmm. Very quickly drinking a lot,、um, hooking up with people randomly,、um, just like so needing to fill that void and not knowing how that、mm-hmm. I was like soaking white bread with Hershey's chocolate syrup and just like eating it by the fistful because I was just so desperate <laughs> for like dopamine, serotonin, like.、Yeah. Just so depressed, so depressed. I was absolutely miserable.、Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, sure enough, like, I feel like a thing that my drug addiction has taught me is that if I really want something, nothing is gonna fucking stop me.、Mm-hmm. Like, nothing is gonna stop me. And so I was able to find heroin. They didn't have Oxycontin, but I found heroin.、Um, In Tokyo and ended up getting that. Yeah. And,、um, and then I started living like a double life. Like once I started doing heroin,、mm-hmm. the depression lifted. I felt good again、um, emotionally.、Mm-hmm. And I became an English teacher during the day. Mm-hmm. But it's so expensive to live in Tokyo. Like,、mm-hmm. I continued to prostitute at night、mm-hmm. so that way I could pay for all of my bills and then also pay for the heroin that I needed. Because、mm-hmm. it's wildly expensive there.、Mm-hmm. It's wildly expensive.、Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Did you have customers that would buy heroin for you? No, because that came from a different person. Okay.、Um, my drug dealer was this guy named Rasta, like this beautiful Rastafarian man. And we'd meet at the staircase, go through the elevator. You know, I'd give him the money, he'd give me the heroin. And I used to try and manipulate him all the time of just like, please just let me, like, I'll do whatever. Like,、mm-hmm. you know, whatever you want, like, I'll, you can be my pimp, like, whatever.、Mm-hmm. But he always had like these, these like weird ethical guidelines of just like, I'm making money to send back to my family. Like, I just want cash. Oh、and、my goodness, Rasta. Ne- I know. Like, I feel like he was low key kind of a guardian angel for me. Yeah.、Sometimes. I know. Wow. I know. I would love to run into him again and just be like, look, like, I survived. Something that I'm, I'm curious about is because, like, I'm picturing you, you're, you know, young and 18, like, knowing you now at 32. Mm hmm. You're so beautiful, and you have this like lioness, like this gorgeous mane of like shiny black hair. And that is a power in itself, right? And,、um, and I'm just curious as to like how did that, how did that affect your experience、mm-hmm. as a drug user in Tokyo? Like, And also the fact that you,、um, like me, you're of mixed heritage. You know, you're half white and half Japanese.、Mm-hmm. And was that a trait that、um, Japanese men, like, was there like a fetish around that?、Mm-hmm. Or, like, how was that serving you or not serving you? Well,、um, the first thing that comes up for me when you were bringing that up is I feel like people never. Could see that I was a junkie because of my external appearance. Like, I didn't look the part.、Um, and so, yeah, I never, like, people, people never assumed that that's why I was prostituting or that's what I was ever doing.、Um, they never really asked any questions. And honestly, like, in retrospect, the men who, Um, would pay for my time and my body, they were sad men.、Mm-hmm. Almost, 
exclusively like men who were in unhappy marriages or, um, you know, they might've had like a deformity, like, Mm -hmm. or they might've had, like, there was a lot of shame around their sexuality. And so it was like, I, in retrospect, I'm so surprised that I didn't have more traumatizing experiences when I was prostituting because what it really felt like was like, I think my kindness and maybe, you know, my looks would take people and make them feel safe mm-hmm. with me to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and that ended up being like a healing experience for them. And so it just, yeah, it kind of felt rewarding in its own way. Yeah. I was going to ask you, like, yeah. was that a surprising element to prostituting that there was like, it could inculcate this kind of like closeness, even though money was involved, Mm -hmm. that there was a kind of like a closeness and maybe in its own way, um, there was some kind of reparation going on Mm -hmm. for someone at some point in that, um, in the, in your time together. I will say the experience of prostituting in America was much different than the experience of prostituting in Japan. How so? In America, there was a lot more sexual violence, like Mm -hmm. wanting to see me be hurt, wanting us girls to, you know, like what you see in movies, like Requiem for a Dream, like, yes, like the porn in America, like just sexual violence was what was sought after. And so it wasn't that same experience when I was prostituting here. Um, but in Japan, it was a completely different factor where, yeah, it did end up becoming like these healing experiences, um, where I felt, I felt like a tenderness, you know, there was definitely a block around my heart. Mm -hmm. There was a block for me sexually. Like, I don't remember feeling anything. Mm -hmm. I don't remember feeling any pleasure. Like I was completely like removed from my body, but I think I was still acting almost like a therapist just in this different form, in this different way. Mm -hmm. Um, and like still using that intuition in these ways that, that helped protect me. Um, they call people who are of mixed blood in Japan, hafu Mm -hmm. for half. Mm -hmm. And I have a very Japanese name. It's Tamiko, which is my grandmother's name. And I think, um, it threw me for a loop because I never felt like I really fit in in America because I was always one of the few Asian kids in my class. Um, and so I thought I would fit in more in Japan, but I absolutely did not. Mm. I absolutely did not. And I don't know that I ever would, even if I'd stayed there for 30 years and become fluent. Um, I wasn't Japanese enough Mm -hmm. and not white enough. And so it was like this weird dynamic just to speak to that a little bit. Yeah. That's so interesting and so relatable for me. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. So you, um, so you kind of hit a bottom when you're in Japan, I know. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, what happened with that? I was desperate. I tried to find help in Japan. I couldn't find any NA meetings. I couldn't find any rehabs. I called several places. If they even spoke English, their advice to me was, you know, just stop using. Um, so I felt completely at a loss of like how to get help, um, to get clean when I was in Japan. So I asked the only person I had, which was my boyfriend. I was like, I just confessed everything. I was like, I can't keep doing this. I didn't tell him about the prostituting, but I did tell him like, I, I, I've been addicted to heroin. I need help to get off. And he stayed with me through all those withdrawals. Like just took such good care of me, helped me through all of that physical pain. Um, and I told him, I was like, you have to look at my pupils because if I'm using heroin, they're going to be pinpoints. And that's how you'll know because I didn't want a way out again. Mm -hmm. And I thought that would be it. But because I didn't get any additional support, you know, soon enough, like I got really antsy, like really itchy. Like I needed, I needed a a fix. Mm -hmm. I needed out. 
um, because I just didn't know how to live life. Mm -hmm. But I knew I couldn't go back to heroin because I told him to look at my eyes. And so when I went back to Rasta, I asked him what were my other options, and he gave me meth for the first time in my life. And what I was able to sustain for years on heroin of like being able to work two jobs, being in a relationship, it was gone within a month of doing meth. I could not function. I could not function. I I was smoking out of a broken light bulb Mm -hmm. because I couldn't find like a glass pipe and I wasn't eating. I couldn't sleep. I would just lay down with my boyfriend and pretend to be sleeping and like just slow my breathing down, but I couldn't sleep. Um, and I would stand up to go pee in the middle of the night and pass out and just like, I was, I was just withering away. And also because of the lack of sleep, because of not eating, like dropping down to 80 pounds, I like started to get really bad psychosis symptoms of extreme paranoia. Mm-hmm. I wasn't able to leave the house for long periods of time. I couldn't take a shower because I couldn't turn my back to the door. I would be washing my hair and all of a sudden I would feel like fingers coming out of the back of my head, like mm-hmm. just bad. Um, and my boyfriend left for Mongolia for two weeks and left me alone. And that's when I fell into the darkest place that I've ever been. Um, by the time he got back, I was, um, I was just a skeleton, like emaciated. It was the middle of summer. The curtains were closed. I, there was no food in the house. Um, I couldn't move. I was basically like catatonic. And, um, I finally realized that I, I, thought I had killed my soul Mm -hmm. because I couldn't feel anything anymore. Like Mm -hmm. I just couldn't feel any emotions. I couldn't feel anything. Mm -hmm. I couldn't feel anything. So I tried to kill myself. Um, and luckily I wasn't successful. Um, I tried, I took a bottle of pills. I tried cutting my wrists and, um, he found me and bandaged me up and put me with a friend in a hotel and bought me a ticket back to Seattle so I could be with my family. Um, Mm. It's just like, you need, you need more help than what I can give you. Like Mm. I can't help anymore. And so I got on that plane and uh, it had a seven hour layover in Honolulu, Hawaii. And I walked off the plane and I left all of my luggage behind because I still couldn't feel anything. Like, I don't know where I was, but I was in this different space of, I can't even, I can't even explain. The idea of me committing suicide was still very prevalent. Like that was my plan. I was planning on killing myself. And so if that's the case, like, nothing else matters. Yeah. There's such a, there's such a freedom and a liberation to mm-hmm. finally making that decision mm-hmm. that I could just be completely present in the moment, not mm-hmm. care that I didn't have any money, not care that I didn't have, I didn't know anybody or have anywhere to go. Like I was in this beautiful place after being in a tropical or tropical, a concrete jungle Oh my gosh! Yeah. for three years, like to be in nature. Yeah. Was just so, oh my God, it was everything to see the sunrise and the sunset, the beaches, Mm -hmm. the palm trees, the sand, the warmth. I very quickly, um, ended up returning to my drug use, meth and heroin. And I was introduced to IV drug use at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, because when you're planning on dying, you know, who cares? Like, yeah, let's, let's use a needle. Cause in my mind is like, once you get to the needle, there's no going back. Like your chances of getting off the needle are next to impossible. So fuck it. Um, and I lived on the streets of Hawaii. Um, I, 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 at that point though, like I had had a, this like psychic break mm-hmm. and I realized I no longer wanted to sell my body. Mm-hmm. And I was living in this different place psychically where I just loved, 
everyone. Mm. Like there was just so much love pouring out of me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've told you this. I was obsessed with Eckhart Tolle's book, The mm-hmm. Power of Now. That was the one possession I had obsessively gone over during my Matthews in Tokyo. I'd highlighted every line. I'd memorized every line. Like I just consumed that book mm-hmm. in this like crazy state it was like the only thing that I was even thinking about oh my gosh and it created some sort of like psychic break for me Mm -hmm. where I was completely present in the moment like radiating love feeling nothing but love for people and that love like carried me like incredible things I would connect with somebody who was just like I just got my inheritance you can come sleep in my apartment and I have all the heroin and meth in the world and you're welcome to it. Yeah. <laughs> you were like manifesting. <laughs> just manifesting so much. But you know, it, what's interesting to me about that, like all jokes aside, is that um, I remember I, I read that book, uh, that Liz Gilbert book, Eat, Pray, Love. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a part in the book where she is studying... Um, I think she's in, where is she? She's in Thailand Mm -hmm. and she's studying with this, um, like a, a shaman Mm -hmm. and he makes this kind of quick statement that really hit me hard, which is that, um, he was saying something about like, whether you go to heaven or whether you go to hell, it doesn't matter. It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I tripped out over that for so long until I feel like I did that similar to you where I did, I went and I ventured into hell Mm -hmm. and I ventured into paradise before. Mm -hmm. And what I understand now about what that means, Mm -hmm. that same thing is like, you going to hell is a spiritual experience and you can be fucking in love the whole time you're going down into hell. And I had a similar experience where I felt like when I was in my own psychotic break, my psychosis, um, I, that was like the biggest love I think I ever felt part of that part of it was because whatever was getting me down there was because love was so big. I didn't have boundaries. And so I would do that thing. Like you were talking about where it's like Mm -hmm. Thelma and Louise, like Mm -hmm. if you're having whatever random person in Albuquerque was in pain and in danger, I was like, let's lock eyes and drive over this cliff to hell together. (laughs) I mean, I was totally down to do it. That was an incredibly intense spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do it again, <laughs> but I, I totally understand what you're saying. Yeah. I don't know that I've ever felt that kind of love and it was in like the darkest chapter of my life also. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty incredible, um, to have a, a testament to that because wouldn't you say that when, once you get to the other side of it, which is to do this impossible thing, mm-hmm. like for people like us, which is to exist in a space where you're comfortable being comfortable Mm -hmm. as opposed to maybe what we're used to is being comfortable with incredible discomfort. Mm -hmm. Like that was home. Mm -hmm. Um, and once you kind of start getting used to that, then the way for me, I know the way that like love feels in my body is, um, it's not, it's not so out of control, which I liked it when it was out of control. I I would say, like, I wanted to experience that. Mm -hmm. I'm exhausted now. (laughs) So I want a calmer version. Yeah. Um, And so it's it's really nice to be on the other side of that kind of paradigm. Um, Suzanne, if it were sustainable, I think you and I would have stayed there. Yeah. You know? Oh. It just, it isn't sustainable. It's not sustainable. The solution is death. Yeah. It's death. Yeah. Um, for sure. Um, okay. So you, you were in Hawaii for a year Mm -hmm. and then, um, you come back to the States Mm -hmm. and, um, you have, you know, so one thing I will say about you is that you have such a big sweetheart that people, I feel like people will crawl out of the woodwork to help you. Mm -hmm. And, um, so it doesn't surprise me that like, 
of course your Tokyo um, Rasta dealer is like not interested in pimping you out and like in his own weird moral universe like (laughs) I'm good you know Uh, but so you get to Montana and I know um, there's kind of a weird period of time that you had to negotiate through in order to ultimately start getting sober or were you sober when you got to Montana? Yeah so I had an extreme psychedelic experience when I was in Hawaii. Yes. I was given iboga, um, and that experience broke me out of the mindset of I'm like, the goal here is to die. I was just sitting alone, cross-legged, just rocking back and forth, like in despair. And then all of a sudden I felt like my mother's arms around me and Mm. she was holding me, rocking with me. And then I felt my aunt's arms around me and her rocking. And then my grandmother's and then my great grandmother's. And I saw this like the line of women and their strength and what they had gone through in their lifetimes and the love that they felt for me and their faith in me and all of that strength that was within them being within me just inherently, um, just rocking with me, just holding me. And all of a sudden, like the shift happened where I wanted to figure out how to live. Do you believe like something so profound could ever happen to you? No, no. And yet at the same time, like, absolutely. Yes. Like it felt like my birthright. It felt like something that I had always known and had completely forgotten. Um, yeah, it felt like some eternal truth that had always been there that I finally had regained access to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those big spiritual experiences are so, they're, the, they're gifts, they're jewels. Mm-hmm. And I've also benefited from them. And what I want to happen is I want to have like what we call like, right, that white light experience. I want that to happen and I want to, because it raises me to this heightened, like spiritual psychic place. Mm -hmm. And I just assume that that's where I live forever now. (laughs) I'm like, oh, I did it. I am like ascended, right? And um, you can catch me in the grocery store looking at avocados, and um, there's probably like this like golden haze around me because like this is how I am now. But that's not what happens. It's not, it's and not. it's so sad that you can like just drip back down to like, oh, I'm still a human, and I have to like take shits and brush my teeth, you know. <laughs> I chased that for so long with other psychedelic experiences, ayahuasca, DMT, 5-MeO. Like, I really tried to get back to that that euphoric place and have since tried, like, sober also. And I feel like the shift that's had to happen for me is, like, this mundane, like, the reality, like, the just living. Like, how do we how do I find as much joy as I possibly can in brushing my teeth? It's almost like you, you get this like flash of what, what ultimate, like what I think is actually just living in unconditional love. Yeah. Yeah. As far as I was concerned, um, you know, that's all using was for me was Mm -hmm. a spiritual experience, Mm -hmm. but it was like the cheaters back door, right? Like I wasn't willing to do any of the, um, emotional labor and any of the work that we do like in our sober community was not willing to do that, um, until I was, you know, I'm such a, like, I feel like all of my drug use, all of that, you know, when I do have those profound moments, like I'm such a clinger and controller, like I want to hang on to those so bad that when I do inevitably drop back down to reality, whatever that looks like, it's helped me so much to not pile on 
like additional shame on top of that of like, oh, like I failed because now I'm not in this floaty space. That actually like sinks me down into the depression and despair. Mm -hmm. There's been um, something new where when I'm not feeling lit and woke and I'm, you know, just, you know, having a rough day or just feeling the blues, like giving myself grace and permission with that of just like this is exactly what I'm supposed to be feeling right now and I feel like another kind of visual I had from my experience was like this cyclical thing where it isn't even an up or a down but it's almost like this fear Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and there is no good or bad Mm -hmm. there is no like light or dark Mm -hmm. I mean there is and yet like it's on the same exact plane yeah like there isn't a down and above yeah Um, there's no hierarchy yeah like all of these experiences are to be like honored and valid Mm -hmm. Um, and me having an opinion about which one I prefer just makes things worse yeah sometimes totally which I think like in in the 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 framework of um capitalism and how you know we really see everything through a hierarchical lens Mm -hmm. that is a hard concept to really embody Mm -hmm. i it's like it's a practice Mm -hmm. right it's a practice because of course like i want to be able to savor you know um feeling like not feeling lit, not feeling woke, not feeling high. I want to like give value to that, Mm -hmm. but you know, my mind will certainly participate in putting that on a Mm -hmm. ladder. Like where does this fit on the ladder? Well, it's lower or it's, or it's higher. And now I'm going to have an opinion about that. Um, or feel like I don't belong in this way or I, you know, I get a major case of the shoulds. Like I should be up here And, um, and that's all just a bummer. Like that just turns into like bummer, bummer, bummer. And I know that something that I, I've had to work on is just like having a sense of humor about it and and being able to like, if I'm in a a shitty mood, which, you know, is less and less Mm -hmm. as I get older, um, having a sense of humor about it. Sometimes that lightens it for me. Mm -hmm. And, like, really getting into it. Like, well, I'm going to have the shittiest mood ever. (laughs) So you get to Montana. Mm -hmm. You sober up. Mm -hmm. I know that some, like, good people step in for you and help you out. Mm -hmm. And then you do this crazy, incredible thing, which is, like, you go back to school. Mm -hmm. And, like, you really start the the hero's journey. Like, the (laughs) hero's journey is, like, really taken off at this point. You've hit your low, but now you're, like, marching up the mountain. <laughs> went back to school started dating a wonderful person who was really good for me taught me how to be honest taught me what integrity meant I remember he was like you know I I just want to honor you and I was just like this is stupid shit who speaks like that <laughs> it wasn't even mean were you like gross yeah I was I was like gross <laughs> so much and I started learning how to make friends like that that was a whole thing that I had completely um you know my idea of friendship had gotten so skewed in yeah. the darkness like learning how to make friends was has been one of the toughest journeys um yeah because what was your relationship like with other women at that point there was no relationship with other women like there just were no relationships honestly mm-hmm. um So I only really knew how to, like, use people and expect people to use me. Like, that was really it. Um, So learning how to re-navigate, like, female friendships. um, That was a really painful void because I feel like I need those female friendships. I always have, and I've thrived in them. Um, I went and became a yoga teacher, I went to Indonesia and got my certification, started teaching yoga. Yoga was one of the first things that I started to do to physically heal my body. Mm -hmm. Um, And in turn, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Yeah, those those are the big things. Do you show up in Indonesia and you're like, hey, I'm actually here to heal and this is where I came from and the drugs and the prostitution and look at me now. Mm -hmm. And people are probably like Mm -hmm. flipping their shit Mm -hmm. and losing their minds. You're getting a lot of attention for it. So what's happening with the story? In the beginning, it was really hard for me to be honest about my story. I want to say like the first two or three years, I didn't want anybody to know Mm. because it was so fresh and so close. Um, But as I began telling that story and I started getting that feedback, man, it was good. It was good. And I want to say in the beginning, it really was helpful. Like it was validating and encouraging having these people see me and believe in me, like know these things about me and still love me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, But over time, I was using it. Like I was using that story as like a shortcut. It was a shortcut to be like, um, I'm just going to tell you my story and I know that you'll fall in love with me and you're going to believe in me, but you don't really fucking know me. Um, wow. And I like actually became like a wall and I would, I would try and like buy people's love with my story. I would, it was like trying to become popular with my story. It was trying to, I was hustling for my worth and my sense of identity was so wrapped up mm-hmm. in this like hero's arc of my mm-hmm. story, um, that I couldn't receive anyone's love anymore. Like when they hear my story and would want to love me, I couldn't even like actually accept that love anymore over time. Do you feel like it was a, a time issue where you just needed more time for the esteem to start building or where was the deficit? So I was even going to therapy. Um, I was trying to figure that out for myself, but ultimately I thought that if I did these things, I would be happy, but that wasn't the case. Like I got my graduate degree. I had all of these things I had done. I had repaired my relationships with my family. Mm -hmm. It was now I was still living this double life without the drugs and it felt like I was putting on a show all day and trying to do all of these things and trying to be happy, like desperately trying to be happy. But I was so, I was so empty inside still like people's love wasn't able to get through to me. Like a sense of belonging wasn't able to get through to me. Um, And I just felt that there was something inherently broken about me. Mm. I felt there was just something wrong with me. And I kept thinking, okay, it'll be the next guy then. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm just with the wrong person. Or I'm just living in the wrong place. Or I'm just working the wrong job. Or I just need to have a perfect body. Or Mm -hmm. just need to be prettier. Or... You know, I would just keep putting it off to like, it's the next accomplishment that'll finally fill this like incredible void, but nothing was filling it. Nothing was filling it. Hmm. So what did you do? What happened? I tried all those psychedelics. That wasn't Mm -hmm. the answer. Mm -hmm. Um, and then COVID hit Mm -hmm. and I fell off the deep end, um, where I got suicidal. Mm -hmm. I was drinking really heavily. I was eating a bunch of acid every weekend. I was eating mushrooms every day. I was snorting hape, which is, um, some, a type of tobacco they use, um, and ayahuasca ceremonies. Um, Mm -hmm. I was just like, (laughs) you know, I was so, so depressed and felt Mm -hmm. so inherently broken that I had failed. Mm-hmm. Like I had done the full hero's arc, the redemption story, and I wasn't, I hadn't figured it out. Mm-hmm. I felt completely hopeless, like absolute despair, um, and felt as close to, to suicide as mm-hmm. I ever had mm-hmm. again and didn't see a way out. And the only thing I could think of to do was to try two things that I hadn't before, which was, um, 
call my friend who had recently told me that she was in AA, mm-hmm. which I had never, I'd been to some NA meetings when I was in treatment, mm-hmm. but had never worked a, a program. Mm-hmm. Um, I had never tried that. And so I called her and I told her I was at the end of my rope and I actually showed up, um, to a meeting mm-hmm. and, uh, decided to give that a go because that was the last thing I had yet to try. Mm. And what was that like for you when you went to a meeting? Did you have an immediate response to it or was it? It was immediate. Mm. I got out of my car. It was the Bonner Park meeting here. Mm-hmm. Um, in July, so summer day. And before I was even across the street, somebody I never met before said, Hey, are you Tommy? Mm-hmm. And I was like, yes, I am. And she was like, you're cute. I had, I heard about you. My eyes were open. I knew it had to be you. So my friend had spread the word that I was going to be at this meeting and uh, another woman in her lineage mm-hmm. went there to meet me and she asked 10 women to have our own circle. And so it was 10 women in our own part of the park and I had my first step meeting and every woman shared their story and I bawled the entire time. Oh my goodness. And I thought that what was inherently broken about me was something that couldn't be comprehended by anybody else Mm -hmm. and no one else like had ever felt that type of despair, hopelessness. Mm -hmm. Um, but I heard that same exact despair and hopelessness in every single woman's story. What is the, what do you feel like the difference, um, has been for you in kind of telling the story over and over again. That's something that we're really encouraged to do is to speak to the despair and, um, speak about it in an authentic way, which isn't to say that you weren't doing that before with your, um, story, but we will say that you weren't getting where you wanted to go with your, your old story. And do you know what the difference is? Is there a difference? When I've told my story now, like in sobriety, um, I'm able to receive people's love now. Mm. And it's, I think it's because now I'm in a place where that void is being filled for the first time. Um, it doesn't feel like a facade as much. Um, I'm still new in this. And so like, that's still, it's still new. So it's, it's hard to really know what the difference is, but I guess when I tell my story now and people love me, I now feel like I am a good person Mm -hmm. and I am more whole and complete than I've ever been. And so I'm, I'm, I'm actually able to like accept that love and receive it and feel it for myself also, which I think was the missing piece. Mm -hmm. Do you, um, do you ever wish you could be, um, like a normal person that could partake in casual, like psychedelic drug use and not have, you know, this crash of, um, like spiritual crisis? Mm -hmm. Or are you comfortable with where you are? Like, mm, I got to just do this, like, sober at... Like, my experience with sobriety is it's the most psychedelic experience that I could have. Um, but so do you ever, like, have that regret? Or where are you in that space? I definitely wish that I could still use psychedelics. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. As you are saying that, I was thinking about how... Um, I had, so I had a similar, like, um, what is it? Just regret, um, and sadness about the, to me, the spiritual dimensions of using psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I certainly had like one or two, um, like life changing Mm -hmm. trips Mm -hmm. that, the way that I have to think about them now is that, um, I had as many as I needed Mm -hmm. and the way that 
for because part of my experience with um, reality is. Um, you know, being in and out of psychosis, I, I tend to, especially if I'm stressed out, I get pushed into, um, like a kind of casual psychosis where it's not life altering and I don't need to be institutionalized, but it's just kind of along for the ride. And, um, and now I understand that, um, yeah, like I don't, I don't get to participate in that kind, you know, in, I don't get to do DMT. But, um, I'm kind of manufacturing my own experience and it's, uh, it's appropriate and okay for me to not be afraid of that anymore mm-hmm. and to think about it in a, like a helpful way. Mm-hmm. Cause it's not scary for me. It's actually, um, it can be intoxicating for sure, but, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't, it doesn't flip me out anymore. You know, um, Suzanne, I'm jealous of your ability to have like casual (laughs) psychosis hanging out with you. Well, I wish I, I had that also. I, you know, Tommy, if I were, if I were at your stage in sobriety and someone were saying that to me, I wouldn't have the wherewithal to recognize that I did have that. And so I have to push back on that statement with you because your timing, like your timing with your questions and your ability to pick up on this thing that I'm desperately interested in, which is like, I'm, you know, very interested in archetypes, time and themes, Mm -hmm. right? That's what astrology and writing is. And, but I see it like how you understand those as well, because you have this really, what I would say, a psychic ability and a very intuitive ability to place the perfect question at the perfect time. It's incredible. And so, um, so my thought is like, you're having a very queer intellectual experience just as much as I am. I also have to wonder if that's the reason why we have to be sober in the first place because we want to put a magnifier to that with drugs Mm -hmm. because it is so spiritual and it's so enriching and we Mm -hmm. glean so much off of it. But that comes with its own time frame Mm -hmm. that does need to be gentle Mm -hmm. and that we do need to respect. And once we ease into that kind of gentle time frame, mm. the gifts start flowing from it, which is mm. slowly happening for me. Mm. And I a hundred percent see that happening for you. Yeah. Just hearing you say that I'm thinking about like all of the radical, amazing things that are happening in my life. Um, that I'm not acknowledging in that statement <laughs> at all. See? <laughs> Yeah, you're like, oh shit, um, the supernatural is alive and thriving in my body every moment. It is. It's all I want. I can't handle not having that connection. Yeah. Yeah. And you do, I mean, we've talked about like, you and I were definitely in past lives, weird, hairy shaman sisters. (laughs) Just like naked. Yep. There were bones yep. and teeth involved. Yep. Lots of crystals. So many like hair crystals <laughs> and BO. Shreds. <laughs> Things like falling out of weird folds in our body. Yep. Like, ju- it was amazing. It was amazing. And I felt it. Like, the first time I saw you, I was like, there she is. <laughs> I see you. <laughs> How many lifetimes have I had to work up to the point where we get to meet when we're sober? Like, oh my god, do this work! Oh my gosh, we've in probably a sustainable way. Well, I I would say all through capitalism and all through patriarchy, <laughs> you and I have been addicts. Like, yeah. It's been generations. Yeah. Like we're like busting out. We're bu- this is like new, 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 but super old. Yeah, we're just remembering. Yeah. We're like, oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, and do you remember, like, remember going through, you know, before, before we learned the appropriateness of like where this information should go, 
just like wanting to tell everyone everything and thinking that that was, that was creating intimacy mm-hmm. and like, not everyone wants to hear, you know, like where you came from and how hard it was. And not everyone deserves to hear. Mm-hmm. I love our that. Story. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really, that's a really good word for that mm-hmm. too. So what, like, what does that look like for you today? Like, how do you discern about, um, where you feel safe, like sharing your, your stories or your information? Because Mm -hmm. it is a fantastic story and it's very inspirational and it certainly has a job. Mm -hmm. So how do you, how do you negotiate that for yourself? I basically leave it up to my higher power. Like, if someone asks me to share my story, like in this context, you know, talking to you, if I'm asked to be a speaker, if I, you know, I did the tell us something, like, in those occasions, I feel like that's something bigger than me giving me a nudge to share my story. But I don't go out of my way anymore to be like, hey, hey, hi, my name's Tommy. I was a homeless, prostituting drug addict for seven years. Like, you know, <laughs> like, nice to meet you. Like, let me just filter you out real quick if you can handle me or not. Like, <laughs> like I just keep it. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, that's basically it. I, f- I don't seek it out anymore. Um, but if it comes to me. I feel like it's my duty almost, or that's the privilege I get to have um, to share it. So, Tommy, thank you so much for being on my little, I don't know what this is. Very first podcast. Yeah. Thank you so much. And my last question for you is... I like I love you so much. I just like I adore you. Do you love me? Oh my god. <laughs> I get scared to even express how much I love you because I fear that you will just like run away because it's such like a consuming like love like <laughs> I, I would literally just, like, t- turn you into a cake and just eat you. Or just oh roll God. you up into a ball and just put you in, like, my kangaroo pouch and keep you there forever. I love you so much. In your overalls. Yes! Yeah. So just put you right here. You just be a little Suzanne right here.